And let me ask you to join uh, with me uh, in prayer. God, um, to know, uh, to believe, to rejoice in the things that have already been shared, sung, prayed in this time together uh, should astound us, amaze us, and cause our hearts to uh, anticipate and to think on and give praise for uh, the reality of your goodness, your love in our lives. So may we, whether we sit in our living rooms this morning or whether we sit in the sanctuary this morning, just again receive your goodness, receive your love. May it um, push us further into your arms that uh, indeed, even in the difficulties of life, we would know of your presence, we would feel and sense your power, and indeed know of your great love. God, I pray that not only for us, but for the people that we love, um, that aren't in our living rooms, that are, aren't in this sanctuary, maybe even aren't uh, in a place in which they accept, receive the reality of that love. So whether it's a, a need physically that we have or others have, whether it's a need emotionally that we have or others have, whether it's a need spiritually that others in our lives may need, God, I would pray uh, not by any words of a human mouth, meditations of a human heart, but of the reality of your spirit and your presence and your power in those things for your glory, that we would be drawn nearer to you. God, we pray that for the authorities around us, both here in Sharon and the state of Pennsylvania, state of Ohio, in the United States and around the world. God, that miraculously and marvelously your grace would abound in their lives that caused them to have a heavenly wisdom, uh, to have a, a sense of hope, and indeed that they would walk and live and make the very important decisions that they make every day in light of those things. That, God, you would indeed bring uh, peace in our troubled world, that you'd bring solace uh, to troubled hearts, and that uh, even today for us you would bring truth through your word. May that be. Uh, may we have ears and hearts to hear, to understand, and to live in your word for your glory, we pray, and do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Elements of a good love story. Don't uh, answer me out loud this morning, but uh, maybe I ask you that. If I were to ask just for you to think, maybe write down a couple of things, what would be some good elements of a great love story? Right? Thinking? Elements of a good love story. It happens to be my 33rd anniversary this Saturday. Wow. Receive that, my wife, because you deserve uh, all of that, right? Uh, yes, uh, 33 years. So I would love, as an authority on the subject of a good love story, right, 
to share all of the uh, things that we have learned in 33 years of marriage. But instead, uh, this morning I'm going to turn to another authority, uh, the great spiritual bastion of Nicholas Sparks. How many of you know Nicholas Sparks? How many of you have read a love story or seen a film of one of his love stories? Yes. Like, the guy's got it. He's like chick flick all the way, right? That is who he is. Nicholas Sparks is uh, an author, for those of you who don't know, who's written way too many uh, books, and many of his books made into to movies. And I uh, recently this week found an article that he wrote, and in that article he said this about the essential elements of a good love story. Uh, he said many, but I'm going to point out three. Are you ready? Three elements of a good love story. He says this, create ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Secondly, don't make it easy on your characters. Thirdly, create internal conflict to parallel external conflict. So if you're here this morning and you're a writer and you would love to write a love story, take note, those are three elements that Nicholas Sparks says should be in every good love story. But maybe more, because you may be wondering why I'm sharing this, maybe more are, uh, let me take these three things and apply them to a, a greater story that is our story, you ready, of being good lovers. I've got your attention now, right? Right? So here, here we go. We, we are working our way through the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, if you're just joining us this morning. And we have slowed down a bit on a very important passage in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Uh, remember how we got here. There, there's the whoop of Jesus' ascension in chapter 1. There's the wow of Pentecost, right, in chapter 2. There's the wham of Peter's sermon also in chapter 2. And then here we are at the end of chapter 2, and this text in the what of the early church, right? Remember last week we talked about the what of the early church, because as you look at the early church in Acts 2, 42 through 47, it should cause you to go, what? Right? It's just crazy. And so here we are, a church that started as 120 people in a room waiting for the promise of God. Then after Pentecost and a relatively good sermon by Peter, there are now 3,120 in the church. And we are told that they are adding to their number daily. And that is one of the things in this text, right, that cause us to go, what? They're adding to their numbers daily. How does that happen? Well, last week we agreed that it was due to the smoke machines, right? Uh, the rock and praise band leader and the really hip preacher. Those were the three. You, you don't remember those three points from last week? <laughs> those, those weren't the three points. No, it's because they are a compelling people that draw people in and an obedient people that cause God to respond by entrusting spiritual growth of many into their care. Those are the two things that we, we pointed out by this text that we see is why God is adding to their number day because God trusted them to do discipleship with them, right? And they were a compelling people by virtue of how they were living their lives. Well, what makes them compelling and obedient, that is where we pick up. Last week we saw that their devotion to the apostles' teaching uh, and, and we discovered that they were a learning community. Why are they compelling and obedient? Because they're a learning community, and we see their devotion this week to fellowship, right? And discover that they are a loving community. So that's where we land today. 
I'm talking about the church as being compelling and obedient as a loving community. They have the perfect pieces of a great love story. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, If not, it'll be on the screen as well. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is the Word of God. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We thank God for the power of his word. I want you to see in that text uh, the pieces of the love story, right? I want you to see the pieces of the love story. There are ordinary people doing extraordinary things, right? I don't have to probably outline that for you, but let me just take a second. Even the apostles who are what? Simple fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary guys doing extraordinary things. Uh, Later on in Acts, we hear them described as uneducated and common men, but people were astonished by their works and their teaching. Here in this text, it says the people were in awe as many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And the ordinary doing extraordinary things advances, as we see in these verses, the the 3,120 attempting to live as one. Uh, Several of you last week when I said, what's amazing about this text, landed here, right? That, That they were living as one. They were living in common. That they were selling their possessions in order that all might be provided for. That's an extraordinary thing. But it's being done by ordinary people. More on that in a second. But just see for it for what it is. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things, an essential element of a great love story. Also see that there is uh, obstacles in the midst of this love story, right? That life is not easy for these people. They live with great external conflicts. Uh, Remember that people are visiting Jerusalem from all over the known world. They've come for Passover. They've stayed for Pentecost and now are taken up by a movement that is happening. And and they don't want to leave, right? So in Acts 2, we see that they're from all over the known world. They've gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. They've stayed for Pentecost. And now the Holy Spirit's kind of shown up and and they don't want to leave. But what does that mean? That means there's some conflicts in their life, like where do I stay long term? How do I eat? What about what happens when my money runs out, right? Those would be things that they would have as conflicts as they spend time in being a part of this new church. They also would have the conflict, uh, again, maybe even worse in the reality of oncoming persecution. Not everybody was excited that this movement was Uh, adding to their number daily, right? And we'll see in chapters not far from here, persecution, the threat of being thrown in prison, the threat of being killed, 
for being a part of this movement. This, there is conflict in this love story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And then thirdly, it leads to an internal conflict that matches the external one. Because in that, there must be fear. There's got to be a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, there are questions of, did what I experience, was that really real? Is Jesus really real? <laughs> uh, th those questions have to be flooding their minds. Maybe the question of how long do I stay? And when I go back, how will my life be different? Uh, get this, the issue of sin has not left just because the Holy Spirit has come. And that sin is going to wreak havoc in their lives as they are recently transformed by the gospel. So, do you get it? There, there lies in this early church opportunity for a great love story, one that is compelling and obedient, one that will allow for the number of believers to grow daily. But here's the question. Will it happen? And if it happens, how will it happen? Well, the second point this morning is that we see not only the elements of a love story, but we actually see that love story emerge. What are we told in verse 42? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that was last week, and fellowship. How are they compelling? How are they obedient? How does this love story come about? It's their devotion to fellowship. What does that mean? Well, remember our, our understanding of devoted. We talked about last week that they continue steadfastly and with passion. That's what this devotion is. It was not, it was not a check-the-box thing. It was not a, oh, got, got that done, right? That, that's not what it is at all. It was an all-in commitment to doing it and to doing it with joy. We talked about that in relation to the apostles' teaching. Well, what is fellowship then? Well, this is the bigger question. Uh, because we have used this term way too simply. How many of you remember uh, growing up in a church where there was a fellowship hall? Right? Yep, 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 yep. So we, we lovingly and rightly have called ours the multi-purpose room, right? <laughs> we don't call it the fellowship hall. Why? Because we, we, we've begun to think that if we show up and have stale cookies and old punch uh, in a room, right, that that's somehow fellowship. That if we gather around a potluck, that that's fellowship. That if we come and eat fried chicken together, that somehow that's Fellowship and fellowship has been uh, now loosely used. And so we think, oh, devoted to fellowship, devoted to hanging out with one another, eating fried chicken. I can do that. You know, devoted to having cookies and punch together. I like that, right? But that's not what this is saying. What is fellowship? Well, first, let's go to the Greek. I'll make you Greek scholars this morning, and some of you probably are knowledgeable of what this Greek term is, because we've actually used it in our English language. It's become an English word. Anybody real loud, other than Elijah Bombeck, because he's already had Greek and he knows. Janie, you know it. Koinonia. How many of you have heard that term before? Right? That is the Greek word here used for fellowship. Koinonia. What does koinonia mean? That's a great question. Glad you asked. It's actually a fascinating study. Koinonia points to a, a fellowship that is really more than uh, something that we do. Uh, it describes, or something that we are, it describes something that we do. It's a, it's a partnership. Uh, koinonia is, is a partnership. In fact, m more than describing something, it, it really means doing something. It's a participation with others in accomplishing a purpose, in accomplishing a mission. Maybe another verse that helps us to understand this idea of 
koinonia, or fellowship. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the, what? Fellowship, there it is, koinonia, of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A lot of cool things about that verse, but see the meaning of the word fellowship. We are not called, listen, to hang out and eat fried chicken with Jesus. That's not, that's not what that is saying, right? Fellowship with him is not going having cookies and punch. But, but we are called into the fellowship, into the partnership with Jesus to accomplish a mission for the glory of God. That is fellowship. One more verse to see this in relation to others. In the book of Philemon, uh, verse 6, uh, Paul says, And I pray that the sharing, and here that word sharing is koinonia, and I pray that the koinonia of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of of Christ. Paul is giving thanks for the church, and he prays that, that the sharing, the participation of them together uh, uh, in their faith may become effective that everyone might know Jesus. That as we are invited into the partnership, the koinonia of Christ, we will live, get this, in partnership, koinonia, with others for the cause of Christ. That's your Greek study today. You got it? That's really the understanding of fellowship. This is what the 3,120 are devoted to in Acts chapter 2, 42. They're devoted to living out the love story of Jesus in their love story with one another. Well, we see this in our text in amazing ways in Acts 2, don't we? It almost makes you want to say, what? They did that? It's compelling. And it's obedient. Look at verses 44 and verse 45. It said, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You've read that maybe a hundred times, ten times, at least twice now since we've started into this text. Don't let that fly by you, right? And say, well, that must have been some first century thing that they kind of got together and did that because I've never heard anybody doing that, right? Don't, don't, Don't let it go flying by. It's the example of the early church receiving the love of God and expressing that love with one another. Do you see it's that thousands of people in a city that they don't call home? Literally tens of thousands of people in a city that they don't call home. Thousands of them have recently become Christians, <laughs> right? They need housing, they need food, they might be out of resources after a month or so, but they want to stay to be a part of a movement that has transformed their lives. So, those who live there are offering every bit of floor space that they possibly can that people might have a place to stay. Those who are there with means are offering food to those who have run out of money. And some are selling what they have and realize they don't need in order to get money to buy food for those who are living on their floors and sitting at their dinner tables. Everyone is living as if nothing was theirs, but belonged 
to the community. That's what's happening. That's the movement that's happening in Jerusalem. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your life at some point. I can remember, um, and I've shared this from this pulpit before, but uh, being stranded during Hurricane Agnes at our camp. So our camp has a long dirt road that goes back into it um, out in Clarion County. And Hurricane Agnes came in 1972. Some of you remember Hurricane Agnes, right? And uh, washed out the road and left us stranded about a half mile back into the woods, right? Um, Couldn't get out, couldn't get around, and we were not anticipating to have a long stay at camp. Now, I was seven, right? So it was a blast for me. I mean, it was mud puddles and mudslides and everything else. But I am certain that my mother, who was there with us as her children, began to get a little anxious when she knew that food was running out, right? But I remember vividly in that time us gathering together under a shelter and everybody bringing whatever they had, (laughs) right? And that made dinner. And it was getting pretty bare, by the time we were able to get out. But we acted as a community. Nobody claimed anything to be their own, but everything belonged to the community. On a lighter note, I can remember uh, doing (laughs) way too many youth trips where buses break down, or or one that I remember vividly getting snowed in and the roads were closed on a ski retreat, uh, and and literally watching students. They thought they were going to die, right? Um, So in their minds, it was survival, right? Uh, So it it was all this. We we had plenty of food. But watching them begin to work as, you know, as a youth pastor, you can't plan something this cool, right? Uh, But the reality was fun to watch them begin to operate as one body. Now, what's happening in Acts 2 is that on steroids, right? That times 10. But what's happening is a love fest. It is the reality of something that is unique, listen, compelling to those who are around them, obedient for the cause of Christ, and many are being saved because of it. Now, I've preached this text before in many different contexts, and um, I generally have someone ask me after service or at some point make some kind of indication uh, asking about whether Acts chapter 2 is socialism. So let me address that, right? Because it kind of sounds like they're encouraging everybody to give up everything in order to be one, to live in common. And if you're familiar with socialism, there are some remnants of that that seem... Uh, to be like that. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Gregory Paul uh, who wrote for a faith blog for the Washington Post, and he said this, that Christians who defend the free market are in profound contradiction because Acts chapter 2 through 5 is outright socialism of the type described millennia later by Marx, who likely got the general idea of socialism from the Gospels. Now, I didn't put that quote on the screen because I don't want you to remember it, right? Uh, because it, it's garbage. It, it's hogwash. I'm allowed to say that, right? Hogwash, right? That, 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 is, that is just not true. Uh, can I reassure you that for a number of reasons that Acts 2 is not, capital N-O-T, an example of socialism. But in telling you that it's not socialism, let me tell you what it is. It, it's the biblical principle and the biblical concept of a love fest. <laughs> of the love of God being received by his people that it might be shared among his people. That's what's happening. 
It's a devotion to loving one another as Christ has loved us. And what the world saw caused them to go, what? And they were compelled by the church's obedience to love, and they were added to their number daily. Listen, it wasn't a forced participation. It was a voluntary, with joy, being devoted to fellowship. So it leads us to a question this morning. Uh, What about our love story? How does this text influence our story? Is the application today, Pastor, are you going to tell me that I should go home, sell everything, and uh, we should all move into the church together, live communally here at Covenant Church? If God's telling you that, we'll make way for you, right? But I don't think that that's what this text is teaching, right? It's not telling us to sell. People get scared when we get here, like the pastor's going to tell me to give up everything, right? In order that I might live communally. It's not what it's teaching. If we're honest this morning, though, it needs to challenge us to think about how compelling our love is as a church and as a Christian to a world that's watching. Are people around us compelled to love God because they see us loving others? That's a question that I think erupts out of this text. You know, to some, to many in our culture, church fellowship is revolting. Some of you may know someone that has never stepped foot in a church past a time in which they have felt anything but loved. Some of you may be sitting here healing from even those things. Some have called church fellowship a porcupine on a cold winter night, (laughs) right? Some have expressed that they have discovered that the sheep of God bite rather than love. We have often, as a church, been seen as an unsafe place of judgment, And listen, many do not come to church at all because of their pain from the fellowship. Arthur Farnsley wrote an article for Christianity Today some years ago, and he entitled it Flea Market Christians. In this article, he describes conversations with flea market vendors who obviously don't participate in a local church. And he found among many, not only a belief in God, but a trust in a relationship with Jesus. And when he asked why they didn't participate in church, many couldn't even talk about the painful experiences of neglect and rejection and abuse that they had from people associated with the church. If you're visiting with us, that never happens at Covenant Church, right? Uh, (laughs) Listen, can I tell you, that, that is not a compelling and obedient picture of fellowship. But it's true more often than we like to think or admit. In fact, like I said, we all know someone who lives in separation from the church because the church has failed at loving them as Christ has loved the church, right? This cannot be our story. Acts 2, 42 through 47 tells us this cannot be our story. Our story, rather, 
is to be influenced by this text. And not only this text, but texts that go beyond it, that, that feed this text. Uh, listen to the command of 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Maybe familiar to you. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to what? love one another. It doesn't get more simple than that. And actually, John, as he wrote 1 John, stole that, right? All good things are stolen. He stole it from Jesus because he wrote about a, a situation in John chapter 13 in which John was with Jesus, and Jesus said this, a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, get this, by this, all people will know, will be compelled to know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will they know we are Christians? <laughs> By our love. How is our love story to be influenced by the scriptures? It, today I want to tell you that it, it starts with knowing God's love story for you. You see it? The story of an ordinary man in Jesus who shows extraordinary love for the world, who, who overcomes the external conflict not only of persecution but of death by rising from the dead so that the internal conflict of your rebellion and your sin would be forgiven. You see that love story? I, mean, I would love to just stop and pause and preach for a half an hour on that love story. Do you, do you know, listen, this morning, do you know that love story? And even if you know it intellectually, I would pray that God would peel back yet another layer to reveal to you how deep his love is for you, that he would send Christ to die for you, to rise again for you, to intercede for you. That God's love is real. God's love is deep. And loving others, the command to love others begins with knowing how much God loves you. I hope you know that love story. Because it's that love story that's going to allow you to live out being loving to the people around you. Knowing God's love story for you enables you to share God's love story with those whom you love. Jackie Hill Perry uh, is uh, a new favorite author and speaker in my life and was listening to her this week uh, about a number of different things and, and she said this that was convicting to me, it was convicting to my life, uh, is convicting to how I love. She said this, that our love is an apologetic, it's a, it's, a, it's a proof text, right? It's an explanation. Our love is an apologetic to the person and love of Christ. She flips it. Not, not only are you going to be empowered and enabled to love because God has loved you, but she's saying this, people should look at your life, and when they look at your life, the love of God is going to be revealed by how you love others. I'll never forget, um, in my high school days, I served as a, uh, an assistant cook. I know that sounds crazy. If you knew me, it's even crazier, right? Uh, at a summer camp, right? Um, and I'll never forget a day in which I was pushing 
uh, a young girl on a swing as we were just kind of hanging out. And the, the talk had just been on the love of God. So I'm pushing this young girl, and these kids came from hard places in life. And I'm pushing her, and I'm trying to re-establish uh, what we've learned in this lesson together. And so we, we begin to talk about the love of God. And she goes, I don't believe that God loves me. And I said, why don't you believe that God loves you? And she said, because no one in my life has ever loved me. And we began to unpack that her father abused her, that her mom didn't support her, that her siblings abandoned her, and she was eight. It's an apologetic. She could not believe in the love of God because she had never known love. Jackie Hill Perry says that your life, how you love, is an apologetic to the reality of God's love. How is someone seeing Jesus as a result of the way that you love? Do we love with open hands? Uh, do we love in such a way that whatever I have is open for others to have as well? Do I love in such a way that we, we strive to have all things in common? Right? A, a willingness to share, even maybe to sell what we have so others can have what they need. Right? Do, do we love in our lives, do we love as a church with open hands? You get that? that? That we don't hold on to any of our idols. We don't hold on to anything that we have as if it is ours, but it is God's. And as God's, it is open for anyone to have. Do we love with open hands? Do we love with open homes? Acts 2 says that the homes of the new Christians in Jerusalem were daily open for people to come and go. By the way, we know this is the reason why we aren't supposed to sell everything. Because why? Because the Christians still own their homes. But what were they doing with their homes? <laughs> they were opening their homes that anybody could find any floor space available in order to stay at their homes. In fact, they were inviting them in for meals. They were coming in to break bread together. They were coming in to meet together and to share together because everything that they had, open hands, led to open homes. I lived in a context growing up in which our home was always open. I was never quite sure who was going to be sleeping where on any given morning when I woke up, or who would be there for Bible study on any given night. My mom, especially today, scratches her head and wonders why her children are always opening their homes for strangers. And I said, Mom, it's easy, because you always opened your home for strangers. And they stay for a long time. Open homes. We're reflecting the love of God by virtue of our open hands, by our open homes. Do we love with open hearts? And maybe this is the most important because I don't think open homes happens near to open hands without open hearts. A heart that is willing to listen and then listen some more and then without defense, without expression, without argument is open to listen some more, to sympathize and maybe even to empathize. Do we love with open hearts? Is your life an open book to allow others to enter in? And therefore ready to walk into the lives of others who need your compassion and your care. Listen, did the early church do this perfectly? 
<laughs> no, they, they failed quickly. We'll, we'll get to some chapters here really quickly where due to some ethnic things, there's some women who are being treated better than other women, right? And so they, they've already blown it, you know, within probably days, weeks of the reality of what being described for us in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 4. They, they blew it. They, they have sinned. They're imperfect. They created animosity. There was division uh, among them. They didn't do it perfectly. But th this is, the, the, the text doesn't say they did it perfectly. But what does the text say? It said they devoted themselves, continuing steadfastly, trying to do better at fellowship. And with passion. So maybe the biggest application this morning is not to sell everything you got and give it to the poor. Maybe the biggest application this morning is a willingness to work on your fellowship. To being devoted to improving your fellowship. And that maybe we as a church might together be devoted to, to be in partnership toward the mission of being the called out and loved by God that we might be sent with one another to what? To love the world. Newsflash, Nicholas Sparks did not make up or discover in all of his literary wisdom the marks of a good love story. He stole it from Jesus. Have we stolen it? <laughs> Do we get it? Are we living these things out? Do we love with open hands, open homes, and open hearts? Can I tell you something, Christian? You are an ordinary person with extraordinary power to love. And if you haven't discovered yet, you will discover soon that love is extremely messy. You're going to run into all kinds of conflicts all kinds of stumbling places. And those conflicts will turn into internal conflicts <laughs> that will cause your mind to spin. But remember this. You are a part of the very best love story ever told. And from that love story, you've been given all that you need to have your life look like Acts chapter 2. As a church, we've been given all that we need to be a compelling and obedient love story. And if we are, hang on, we might just see people being added to our number daily. We're going to sing as we close a song that says this, Holy God, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. And then this prayer. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. May as we sing that this morning, that be our prayer. Show me the love, God, that you have for me, that I might share that love with those you have placed in my life. Let's pray together.
God may be easy to intellectually get our mind around a picture of the first church and the way in which they loved one another. Maybe harder to get our hearts around the principle that we are to be likewise. So even as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and our minds challenged by your word, may we, may we think of those even in our lives who are hard to love. <laughs> and may be today the application is, is God that you would reveal more of your love to us that we indeed even in the most difficult places, would share a greater love for even those in our lives who are hard to love. Because there is a place that is compelling and obedient. There is a place that we can see you because even while we were still sinners, at enmity with you and rebellion against you, you sent Jesus to die for us. That love is a love that we want, not only as individuals here this morning, but as a church. So that the world would be compelled to want to know you by even knowing us. God, would you fill us with your love that we indeed might obediently share your love with the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.